0: Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview.
1: Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, Scott and I are back, and we are going to be talking about assumptions when it comes to our interviews, investigations, and assessments. So welcome back, Scott.
0: Hey, it's good to be back.
1: It is good. So we are thinking today and talking a little bit about how assumptions can impact professionals when we're doing these investigations. So Scott, tell us about some of the assumptions that you've heard or you think that people should be aware of when we are working on our cases.
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of them. I think this happens in everyday life and uh, current events. Uh, some of the stories that we see, I'll p- probably tell a story in a minute about it. But some of the assumptions we've spoken about in other podcasts, one that bears repeating. So some of our listeners, if you heard this before, you'll this will uh, be a refresh for some of our newer listeners. Um, this may be new content. One of the things that comes up is this <clears throat> idea of making assumptions so let's say you're conducting an investigation or you're conducting a forensic interview or or even an assessment on an individual and the way somebody speaks if they're impaired in their speaking our brains default to slow like cognitive delay and it can impact certainly how you conduct the remaining investigation or interview if you're making assumptions based on the way somebody speaks or based on the way they look, like people with cranial facial anomalies or postural anomalies, people tend to make assumptions about their overall intelligence, uh, w- which is usually like there's, there's believe there's a deficit. And if somebody speaks well, like kids with Williams syndrome, uh, universally pretty much have an intellectual disability, but they they're really good with language. So the way they speak sort of belies that there's an intellectual deficit. So it can bias people where people can make assumptions in uh, either way for assumed intelligence, higher or lower.
1: So, and I think that's important as we think about those cases and how MDTs come together and we're thinking about with disabilities and what assumptions we should be careful of and i like how you gave both ends of that right we don't want to assume either way and one of the things that we say back to your point about this being a refresh in a lot of our trainings is the only assumption that we should make is normal intelligence right you should have that sort of like default right, setting in right. your brain That someone has normal intelligence unless we have multiple data points that tells us something different one direction or the other. So I love that idea of not making assumptions, but that's what we tell people is like you can make one assumption and that is the person has normal intelligence. And sometimes that requires some deep thought and redirection because we have maybe been conditioned or um, learned through some of our interactions with people, you know, that doesn't feel like something that comes naturally, I think to a lot of folks. So, um, I think that that assumption is important for us to recognize and and take care of.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I and, and another one I would talk about is uh, people's sexual behavior. So I had a case. So I, and we've talked about this on podcast, another podcast on capacity to consent for to sexual behavior for adults with intellectual disabilities. And as you, if you know, I've done a number of criminal cases and assessments on that. And I'm thinking of one alleged victim I was getting ready to do this capacity to consent on. It's an adult victim with intellectual disabilities. And this victim liked having sex. She (laughs) disclosed that she liked having sex with lots of different people. And when I do a training, I'll do a training with um, a district attorney's office or a group of investigators if I'm doing this capacity to consent training. one of the things I'll say is, Listen. There are people who might like having sex with five people at once, ten people at once. Um, Whether that's you're into that or not is irrelevant.
1: Right. We can't let that come into our thoughts about this person's decisions and the way that they choose to live their life. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's safe to say most people probably aren't like on board for a Mm (laughs) twelve-on-one. However, if somebody is, your own values and mores. About whether that's okay or not okay. It's really hard for that not to bias you or impact your thinking uh, moving forward, whether it's about a capacity issue, any other assessment issue, an investigation or an interview, same thing on a on a little different level. if somebody has been convicted or has a history of abuse, it's hard not to make assumptions about maybe this particular abuse. It, it, just because they abuse other people doesn't mean, they abuse this one. And don't get me wrong. I'm not taking the, the side of, you know, convicted perps. It's just the goal. And it can't be said enough is to gather information in uh, useful, reliable, mm-hmm. legally defensible ways. Right. And it can get skewed in, whether you're talking with somebody or you're conducting an investigation. And we may not sometimes even be aware of some of these biases uh, that come in the cranial facial anomalies, the way somebody speaks being one of them.
1: Well, and I think as we think about... Interviewing because of course that that's my area. So as I think about interviewing and the way we have to overcome some of those biases, I think it's really important that we draw attention to some of those things, not only when it comes to the individual's abilities, but also like what the person is saying to us, because we may get a thought, you know, that something doesn't seem plausible, but of course we haven't seen everything. And so I think some of those assumptions are hard for us to fight also, and we don't want to get confirmation bias, especially for people who've been doing this for a long time. I think that gets really easy like oh you've seen a hundred cases like this before so you assume that you know how things went down and of course every person is unique and every situation is unique so we can't let ourselves sort of fall into those traps either so bringing awareness to it I think is a great first step
0: yeah definitely and you know recently one of the reasons we we sort of came up with this topic uh I was sharing with somebody was sharing with me that they saw that Alex Murdaugh, Alec Murdoch whatever piece of shit that guy however he pronounces his name uh the guy who killed the shotgun to his son and his, and his wife, that whole sordid affair. Well, th- this person was sharing with me a- and uh, started to get a little annoyed with me because everything they were saying was from this documentary that they saw. And I said, and this is how we want investigator brains to work. We want forensic interviewer brains to work, assessor brains to work is I was questioning like, well, what explains that? What's on the other side? Um, now it turns out, He was convicted and it seems like, you know, without a doubt, certainly beyond reasonable doubt, he did it. So I refer to him as a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Our producer, Maddie, says I can swear. So (laughs) the the the, but the fact is, is I'm always curious. So when somebody sees something or has information, especially in like a documentary, it's usually from one side, one perspective. Mm
1: -hmm. Intentionally. Yeah. They're
0: trying to create a narrative or, or or confirm an assumption. We have to do the opposite when Mm -hmm. we're conducting interviews and and, uh, conducting investigations. We have to do the opposite of confirming an assumption.
1: Right. Because the truth often... Is sort of in the middle and i i know that's one of the things that that i try to remember too it's like okay what are the two stories are there more than two stories how many sides to this story are there and it's important that we think about that from all the different perspectives because we don't want to just have one side or um, be thinking one-sided about anything when it comes to these interviews investigations
0: i used to tell my undergraduate students there's no such thing as what really happened hmm. And I don't know if we've talked about this on a podcast before. And if you're hearing bumping noises, it's me using my hands and <laughs> hitting, our new, hitting our new microphone <laughs> stuff here, like, you know, these, these noises. So anyway, sorry about that. But I used to tell them there's no such thing as what really happened. And, you know, they would look at me and say, you know, Professor Modell, what, what, what do you mean? I said, well, think about it. Even if we have something on film and... I know, Stacy, that you like some this NFL team. I don't. I can't remember their name. The Bills of Buffalo, some yeah, uh-huh. something so, like that. And as a as Bill a Bills. as a lifetime Giants fan, mm-hmm. as a lifetime Giants fan, um, you and I, well, what really happened was it a catch or not a catch? Not only could we be watching it, we could have it on film and watch it in slow motion and still disagree mm-hmm. with what we're seeing. So even when you have something on video, so recognizing that. There is no this idea of a universal truth. It's getting these perspectives and trying to get information in the least biased, most reliable, most useful way.
1: So I think that that's a great parallel with football, but also we know that when a bank robbery happens, if people have multiple perspectives of it, their accountings are going to be slightly different. And we know that that's true. There's lots of research that tells us that people um, experience encode, and, and retrieve and relay information differently based on their life experiences, based on their where they're moment standing. in time, where they're standing, <laughs> their perspective. So all of those things change people's perspective. So knowing that and going into these investigations, I think is really important because we all have our own worldview that's formed over our lifetime so to we can't necessarily like put that somewhere else we can't take it out of the equation but we have to make sure that we're aware of what those things are so we don't find ourselves becoming biased um, in our conversations with folks
0: yeah definitely and I think we can uh, this may be a shorter uh, podcast who knows we could keep going but <laughs> at the very least let's get to some strategies I know you have some I'm gonna I'm gonna share in my head, what I do, whether it's an investigation or an interview, and it's really the same thing. I think you and I use different language for it. Mine is, is what explains that? Mm-hmm. What's behind it? I know you you use a different term, alternative hypothesis. Alternative hypothesis, We use yes. that in our trainings, but mm-hmm. in the more colloquial way. In my head, I'm like, well, what explains it? Somebody says, well, that doesn't, like, I can't believe the person did this. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense why somebody would do that. What else might explain it mm-hmm. other than, What our assumption is of what explained it, so
1: because their behavior likely serves some sort of purpose.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely, as all behavior does. Yeah, there are times where you know we'll get one perspective, and then we can think like somebody saying somebody did something because of X, Y, and Z, Mm -hmm. and my brain goes to. I've trained my brain most of the time (laughs) to go to. Well what explains that? Mm -hmm. What what's the other side of that? So you you have a strategy that you use and language that's consistent with our training. So we'll go with we'll go with yours. (laughs) I
1: think it all it all works. And it depends on I know. Because different things work for different people because we're all different. So I you know, I've met with interviewers from across the country and some of them who will have very limited information about an investigation in order to reduce the likelihood that they would become biased. Um, some people go into interviews with no information whatsoever, which isn't my style. I don't typically recommend that because I like to know. At least a little bit about how the person communicates and what i need to know about the individual which we talk about a lot in our trainings too because i think it makes us better interviewers even if you don't know
0: any of the uh the the, even if you don't know the fact pattern or any other uh, data
1: points right exactly knowing about the person that you're going to be talking to at least getting some background information can certainly be helpful Um, but my strategy i i was more one who wanted to know as much as i could before walking into an interview and i and i still operate that way but I always make a point to say out loud to somebody, okay, so it could be that it went down like it was reported, or it could be that it was a misunderstanding, it could be that it was another person. You know, and I sort of go through all the different possibilities of how this potentially could have happened. The other story, um, you know, from what you were saying, Scott, what are the other stories that could be potentially there? Because as I'm thinking about my question formulation, in order to avoid that thing we call confirmation bias, again, using some of my training words again, um, we want to make sure that we are exploring all all of the possibilities of what could have happened because we weren't there. We don't know. And understanding how that person encoded those memories and how retrieving them in the most complete, legally defensible, developmentally appropriate way that we can. And that's all part of the process.
0: I think that's great. The other thing, uh, uh, maybe a cue for you, if you're in an investigation, in an interview, and you find yourself getting feeling something like frustrated, grossed out, uh, angry, those generally, those emotions are generally signs, not always, but generally signs like I might need to take a pause and, and try to assess what I'm, what assumptions am I making? If any, why am I frustrated? Because invariably, if you're frustrated, you're angry, you're grossed out, it's going to impact your ability to get information in a neutral, reliable, legally defensible way.
1: Yeah, because you're making a judgment at that point in some capacity, you're making a judgment about either the person or what happened or whatever the thing is. So yeah, catching yourself in that I think is really important.
0: Yeah, and you know, you said something that makes, makes me extend this a little bit. Words that we use sometimes are value words mm-hmm. that are judgment words. Mm-hmm. So when we say things like, well, the person admitted, see there's a value statement in there as opposed to like, what do you mean the person said mm-hmm. or reported? Think about the difference in that language. Disclosed.
1: It, All three of those things could mean said, but they have slightly different meanings. Yeah,
0: disclosed on one end, but certainly mm-hmm. admitted on the other. Mm-hmm. So we we have to also be thoughtful of the language that we use because some some of our language conveys a value mm-hmm. of how we feel. The one I always talk about, I actually, uh, in the other work, we have a a, a whole, a a quick video on this where we say, "I say there's no such thing as common sense." And Mm -hmm. when I say that, people go, "Yeah, you're right," meaning they agree that people don't have common sense. But what I'm actually saying is, common sense is not an observable thing; it's a value statement we make Mm -hmm. based on. Skills I think you should have or should have deployed at this moment, but you didn't.
1: Right. and it, Or that I have and therefore I believe everyone should have. Because exactly. that's what makes it common.
0: Exactly. So it's better to describe what your issue is or what mm-hmm. the problem is versus then saying somebody just doesn't have common sense because it's a value statement to based on a judgment based on somebody's behavior or serious behavior or the absence of a behavior.
1: mm mm-hmm. Because it's not common in that way, like you're saying, but we all have different experiences back to our lenses and, you know, how we experience the world. So thinking about that and understanding that people aren't going to know everything that you know. And if we have those judgments about people, it's going to affect our interactions with them for sure. Yeah. Common. <laughs>
0: I like it. You like what common yeah, but people try to argue. Well, it's Like, I'm sure we could get consensus mm-hmm. on a couple things that we could label it. But common sense is a label on a behavior, a serious behavior. It's not an observable thing. It's it's just a value judgment. So, right. if we start finding ourselves using language like this, or you know, labeling people assholes, which is you know typical in mm-hmm. when I'm driving, um,
1: <laughs> or talking about murderers, which I think is okay. Yeah, yeah, or whatever. Wherever I said the piece of shit. Or oh murder, yeah, murder, piece of like shit, you're right. Yes, he
0: is. So, yeah, right, those things. But you know what? I'm not investigating uh, that trial. Right. I have so nothing can... to do with that. So I can be judgy all I want. That's right. <laughs> but in the professional role, you put your hats on and and you try to be aware of those emotions or maybe some of those words that you're using. And on the front end, try to de-bias yourself, saying, I'm going to go in thinking, like, what else explains this? Mm-hmm. What are some alternative hypotheses for these? Awesome.
1: Yeah. So we have to be aware of them because they happen all the time. And we already know how Scott feels about the Buffalo Bills. That's one of his biases based I on I hate the Bills as,
0: as much as I hate... I, I'm not even get <laughs> yeah, into it because do you know that. some of our listeners. But if I'm a Giants fan, you can hate me if if uh depending on who you are. That's right. But that's okay. Well, you can't hate me. You can just hate that I like the Giants. Right. But it's not my they fault. I was they born can have a judgment. It. Right. I was, they can have a judgment. I was born into
1: it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you're born into it, I guess then that's just the way it is. <laughs> all right. All
0: right. We've we've devolved. So yes. We're well, hopefully under football again. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully this was uh, useful for you in some way. Thanks yeah. for listening.
1: Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Model Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com or follow us on social media.